0: Hello and welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Your support makes this podcast possible in practical, tangible ways, but also in intangible ways that are just as important. You make me feel supported and appreciated. And so you make this podcast possible in an even more foundational way. I literally and figuratively couldn't do this without you. So thank you. If you'd like to support this podcast by subscribing to our Patreon, that link will be in the show notes and on the support page at organicwinepodcast.com. Now, I want to tell you about a conversation that I overheard recently that I wish I had recorded to play for everyone who drinks wine. I was wine tasting recently with another winemaker in Paso Robles, and it turned out that both he and the woman who was pouring wine for us had worked as grape samplers for a couple large wineries. I won't mention the wineries' names, but you know them. And you've probably drunk their wines because they're literally ubiquitous in grocery stores and liquor stores and anywhere that wine is sold. Both of these folks had similar experiences as grape samplers that to this day had left a lasting impression, and that's what they were talking about. And now just for context, Every winemaker samples grapes, and because large wineries manage thousands of acres of vines, they employ people whose sole job it is to drive around in the fall and pick grapes from each block of vines over those thousands of acres to bring back to the lab and or do field tests to determine ripeness by various measurements. As grape samplers, both of these young people had been encouraged by their employers to taste the grapes as well, to develop their palate for ripeness and flavor which can at times be more important than chemical analysis anybody who does this you get to know that and actually rely on your palate more than sometimes the numbers um, both of these people had refused to taste the grapes and they refused to taste the grapes because of the safety videos that they were required to watch as part of their jobs for these wineries you see in california it's A law that if you spray certain things in your vineyard, anyone who enters that vineyard as an employee is required to watch safety videos beforehand to ensure that you know the risks and perform your work with informed consent. In other words, we must first sit you down and explain to you that you're taking your health and life into your hands by exposing yourself to the things that we spray in the vineyards. This knowledge of what was sprayed on the thousands of acres of vineyards that they had to visit had so freaked out both of these people that they'd refused to put the grapes into their mouths. The same grapes that we've bought and sold and drunk in these brands, Cabernet, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blancs, etc. This kind of farming is true for the vast majority of the wine, really in the world, but specifically in California. One of the direct quotes that I remember from the conversation was when the tasting room manager, explaining why she decided not to work as a grape sampler for a second season, said, I mean, I want to have kids someday. This kind of thing is just crazy. Like This is what the farming is that is the vast majority of grape farming that our wine comes from. Of course, my hope is to reconnect you with the farming behind the wine that you drink and buy and sell. We're so disconnected from the soil that our grapes grow in. And I think we might change our farming decisions if we had to walk that soil every day, if we had to be in those grapes, we shouldn't have to endanger ourselves and future generations to enjoy a glass of wine. My featured sponsor for this episode is Vermont Vineyards, Vermont Vineyards designs and installs vineyards of all shapes and sizes all over Northeastern US. If you're considering planting a vineyard, get in touch with Stephen at Vermont Vineyards at vtvineyards.com slash owp. That's vtvineyards with an s dot com slash owp for Organic Wine Podcast, all lowercase. And a special thanks to Stephen for suggesting my guest for this episode. David Keck is my guest, and he's a master sommelier and Vermont vigneron, farming and making wine under his label Stella 14. David and I had a fun conversation that started before we hit record and finished after our connection dropped out, and it was interrupted multiple times. So what you're hearing is really the highlights about David's approach to wine, wine knowledge, wine growing, and wine making, and so much more. Despite the truncated nature of this conversation, there's a little something for everyone enjoy oh and if you stay tuned to the very end beyond when the final music plays it's actually not the end of the episode there's a little special second part very short little addition special reward for staying tuned to the very end about the legend of the mosquito david welcome <laughs> thank you for having <laughs> this conversation no, um, glad to be here. so I guess I'm we, we, we had started a conversation just for anybody anybody listening, we had a lovely, lively exchange for the last fifteen minutes that I wish I had hit record sooner. And I am the question I'm starting with now or the, the point that I wanted to make now, you made a really great point about how how long the clonal selections of Pinot Noir have been made and that we, you know, have been refined and toyed with and tweaked over centuries and millennia even to arrive at, you know, these lovely Pinot Noir vines that we have now. So why wouldn't we want to work with those, you know, as opposed to not necessarily in opposition to, or instead of, but, you know, when we think about something like Marquette, which is a huge popular hybrid, it's only been around for 20 years. And, you know, we've got a long way to go in terms of refining and toying and tweaking it and getting it to a point where it's even better than it is. I mean, it certainly makes delicious wine now, but, um, where could it be in two thousand years? And uh I my only comment to that is I two. I mean, one, the continuing propagation of Pinot Noir around the planet prevents the toying and tweaking with other things. And two, sure. I mean I grow Pinot Noir and it is uh, you know, without spray, it is not a very resilient plant. You know, it is yeah. it might have a great flavor. We might have, you know, bred it and toyed with it and tweaked it for flavor. But in terms of resilience and hardiness and resistance, Mm. it is uh it is poor. (laughs) Period. (laughs) Um and so that's where I think, you know, my my only counter to that idea would be, which is like, let's give you know, vinifera is great, you know, like no, I'm not I don't I'm not dissing (laughs) vinifera. Obviously it's got like lots of wonderful things, but we need to adapt. We need to change. We need to continue to have development of new things. And when you have like in the U S seven vinifera grapes that make up 70% of the wine production, like that just automatically excludes so much innovation and breeding and, you know, tr- trial and error with other things. Like we, we need a wine culture that's more inclusive of new things and new ideas that are able to get commercial Backing, they you know that can have some economic viability so that they can continue to grow and develop.
1: To be devil's advocate, I'd say, or it provides opportunity, right? I mean, if the world is so locked into you know specific grape varieties that you know all of a sudden everything else is is unique and exciting and interesting, then that also provides sort of opportunity. But I think you're not wrong. No, you're right. We we have this challenge of you know varieties that are not inherently as sustainable to grow and 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 there's a monoculture that results as a, you know from that we look at places like oregon where pinot noir is the yeah. only thing right and and that creates an unsustainable environment for workers for planting and um and i think that is a climate huge challenge
0: adaptation but i yeah. but
1: i think where we get into trouble is when it's it becomes this whole greater than lesser than conversation where, which I see on mm. both sides where, you know, the argument has been, and and rightfully so for a while, because there were some pretty gnarly hybrid wines until I would argue relatively recently. Um, mm. And, you know, it, it was kind of like you can't make great wine with hybrids has been the argument. But I think there's also the argument that I'm hearing very loudly put forth that vinifera is, you know, the, the, Colonialization of wine, and it's the it's the evil you know plant that we need to move away from. And I think that these things can coexist. I mean, I I would like to continue drinking beautifully made Riesling from Germany because (laughs) it's delicious. And I don't think, and and I I think there's nothing colonialist about it. It's been grown there for two thousand years, very successfully, and not on the backs of anyone. You know, (laughs) yeah, very very uh, very and beautifully made. So. I'd, I think we need to continue looking at ways to grow grapes in fringe areas and make more, you know, more unique and interesting and creative beverages, and and encourage people to be open minded about consuming those beverages. But um, but I think they have to yeah. also be delicious, right? That's our that is yeah. our um, obligation as winemakers.
0: Yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying. I think you're pointing out the this idea that you know. a a lot of what you're hearing is reactionary and, you know, and probably with good cause in a sense because of how the, how dominant this idea of like vinifera supremacy has been in the wine industry for the past 50 years. Um, You know, there is this, uh, you know, understandable reaction and like, you know, (laughs) sort of like F vinifera kind of thing, like enough of (laughs) this, enough of this crap, you know? um well, and like listen, I and i do think it's time for a develop. change i mean i think it is time to open the doors to to other things you know and and i think it's happening you know i mean like you yeah. said it like that dominance of vinifera actually has has been its own undoing now where people are just like wow can we please try something else thank you like anything i'm you know i'm open to anything just give me some variety please like yeah so, um, something new please yeah 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 um but i, I guess i'm I look at it from like an ecological standpoint, as I mentioned, you know, and and anyone listening to the show understands that this is why I'm doing the show, which is like to think about, you know, so a place like California where I live, like if hybrids had been, you know, not denigrated, they literally you know, could have reduced spraying of pretty shitty chemicals for years uh here, you know, if they had if if it hadn't been if we had allowed for the adaptation uh earlier in, in the 20th century or the continuing adaptation of, of hybrids to to be more flavorful, to be commercially viable in terms of taste. You know, we could have, and, and I think we're at that point now where I, I really believe, you know, hybrids need to be re-entered into like these, the big vineyards of California um, yeah, and, well. and continued. You know, I think it needs to be a process where people just open their minds that it doesn't have to be just, you know, vinifera because you could have something that, literally doesn't need to be sprayed. It's resistant to pretty much everything, you know, is bulletproof against pretty much everything that that California can throw at it. And I mean, economically it's smart and then just environmentally it's incredibly smart too. And especially as we you know, we need hardier and hardier hardier varieties with the extremes that are happening with climate change. Um yeah, so well, that's I mean uh, yeah. Go ahead. I
1: think that's I, I totally agree with that. I think that the challenge has been um, in the element of wine that is probably the most important if we ever want to be successful, which is the delicious element. And, you know, it's you can make the most sustainable, you know, uh, spray free, spectacular grain on the planet that is that isn't wheat that can you know, feed gluten-free people the world round. And if it tastes like garbage and cardboard, then it's going to be almost impossible to sell no matter what, like it's going to sell to a very niche group of folks. And I think that hybrid varieties have evolved over, you know, the past 50 years in a really positive way. I think having tried hybrid varieties in, you know, competitions and in local areas 20 years ago, I mean, there's a reason that they were not being propagated and it was not because people were so beholden to Cabernet. It's because the wines were really challenging um, right. <laughs> and foxy and weird and flawed and and not delicious at the end of the day. And I think that was the bigger issue. And I think now we've yeah. got hybrids that are really. I mean, you know, Marquette, Frontenac Blanc, I think is really spectacular. Saint Croix, yeah. these these grape varieties that are so resilient and also make delicious wines. Um, at least up no. here in Vermont, I don't. We don't see any pushback about those grape varieties. Honestly, we yeah. just don't make enough wine for the community anyway um
0: well right well i mean you know, uh, my <laughs> the bigger own, issue now my, is
1: getting acreage planted
0: my only devil's advocate to that and it's not not really i'm not disagreeing with you at all uh, but a little nuance that i want to add to that is like like a clone like uh, i mean a hybrid like Baco noir for example which mm-hmm. um i know is me- being made into some of the most delicious wine in california you know from mm-hmm. from california Baco noir here that is grown without spray that could have been grown for the last 100 years you know i mean it's not a recent hybrid it's a delicious hybrid that has been around and if it made bad wine i know for a fact that it was the winemaking and not the hybrid right. and that's where some <laughs> maybe well and that might be because of the mentality because it was never given the showered with the same economic uh you know whatever, you know, uh <laughs> winemaking techniques sure. that Vinifera was given. And and so it was a a, a vicious cycle of it's like, right. yeah, yeah, it's bad. So we're not gonna give it a lot of attention. So it, it will always be bad kind of thing. And it just took somebody, you know, here, Matt niece to to show that this is like a delicious, stunning, you know, stunning wine, a single variety wine can be made from it and it's as good as anything made in California that's red, you know. Right um and yeah so I, I mean there is a little nuance to it you know there's a little like no for sure I, and
1: i think there are exceptions to any rule i think the challenge is just right. you know grape growing hasn't exactly especially i mean i work in a pretty fringe area proving economic viability is pretty important in our field no matter where you're working and and that's challenging you need people to take risks right and that is always the yeah. thing that will create evolution and change in any industry and i think we are being pushed into some change because of the climate and because of and working in different areas and you know fill in the blank drought fires all the different things that are changing the business constantly but um but i think we also live in the most progressive time as far as people spending money on beverages that are very different than anything they may have consumed before and we live in probably yeah, the most agreed, interesting yeah. time as far as what you can drink off the shelf i mean 50 years ago finding a I, I mean most of the wine world in the united states even 30 years ago was drinking white zinfandel and you know still yeah. we're talking about one the 1% of 1% of progressive wine drinkers you know most of what is sold in the country is still mass produced chemically sprayed pretty generic grape juice fermented into something
0: yeah. yeah 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 yep and so, and yeah no i i <laughs> and i mean to me that's an opportunity as well again with the hybrids it's like if the if <laughs> you know if hybrids and and probably a lot of that grape is i mean a lot of that juice is made from non-vinifer or from something who knows what i don't know but i who you know, I, <laughs> I always use yeah i always use something like stella rosa as the example of like you know people don't drink it because it has vinifera or they even know what the grape is in it they drink it because it's sweet slightly sweet a little fizzy and light and yeah. delicious you know like delicious in that fun fruity slightly sweet fizzy way and yeah. you could easily make that with vinifera i mean with non-vinifera you know and yeah 100 replicate that just as easily Yep, 100 percent. right and and not need to spray it you know not need to do the conventional farming in the same way that it's being done um but anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, no. I, le, let me jump back into your story a little bit. You are a master psalm, Is that true. correct? <laughs> that is correct. Okay. <laughs> um your I, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with that. I there are so many good things, but I le, please could you just sort of talk about your journey that led you to that and then led you to Stella 14 Wines, your winery. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I was in music for a long time and um, decided to depart that career when sort of the economy took a downturn in 2008, and I was finishing my master's in operatic studies and um, and wasn't really happy with sort of my prospects with respect to either traveling all the time, which is the operatic career, or, you know, in this country, everybody was kind of doing the same operas over and over because the they were sure to sell tickets and so i decided to make the change into wine and about that time i sat the intro exam with the quartermaster sommeliers and um and kind of got hooked and um and as many people in on that path are i'm you know relatively competitive and um and when somebody says this isn't impossible to achieve accreditation i was like okay let's do that <laughs> and right. um, and at that point i would i Started running wine programs, or and I'd been bartending in wine bars and things like that. And so, for me, the path—I mean, to become a master sommelier—was really kind of the the reason that it had so much appeal is because the practice of studying was actually the practice of getting better at my job. So, right, you know, if I was learning about you know, small regions in South Africa or what's happening in Chile right now, then then I could bring those wines in and talk about them, and you know, be successful in the business as well so it all kind of fed into each other and um and i just kind of continued on that path past my exam in 2016 yeah sorry
0: no 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 this is um i i mean i have a i have a similar trajectory well i don't know if i have a similar trajectory i wanted to ask that did you have the experience of tasting a, a really amazing glass of wine that led you to be like oh what's this wine thing let me let me, what is this thing that's doing this thing to my sensual experience and (laughs) then want to learn more? Or did you start reading just out of like some curiosity and, you know, this challenge and competitive spirit and then like sort of get hooked that way through like, oh, this is tied to culture. This is tied to history. This, you know, this, this subject is really has a fascinating and Connections to things that are much bigger than I expected uh, a, a, a little beverage to have. Like what? Yeah, what was that I, I was moment of for you? Um, okay. I
1: don't know that there was a moment necessarily. I um, okay. I like to talk about. I mean, I was working in New York and and studying and on uh, a, a coach and um, conductor that I was working with he and his partner have been collecting wine for a very long time and traveling to Europe to bring back, you know, since the seventies, 70s, eighties, 70s, really just, um, and it was sort of chatting with Ken, you know, when I was in school there that he, he said, well, oh, you're interested in wine. And I was work I'd worked in hospitality as a bartender and, you know, in restaurants, but I didn't really know anything at that point. And I said, yeah, no, I'm really interested in wine. And he said, well, come over to dinner at our place and let's open some bottles. And I, you know, brought like a little, Uh, Syrah with me that I had no idea and like, okay, well, if we're going to open this bottle of Syrah, we should probably open this and then we should open this and all of a sudden, you know, there's 10 bottles of wine open on the table (laughs) so everything had to be paired, of course, with what Chris was cooking because he's a wonderful chef And, and it was like, oh my god, so this is like this is a very different thing. And the wines overall, <laughs> you know, I don't remember specific bottles. I think he probably opened some Chave Syrah for us, uh, whether it was Hermitage or something else, but knowing them probably just to be like, this is, this is what, this is the top of what this can be. And, um, right. and then when I began the process of really switching careers, I think that was when I really started to appreciate the cultural significance and, and also just, you know, music is, also a super multidisciplinary career. And one of the things I love about it, and as somebody who has sort of intellectual ADD, um, being able to be in something (laughs) where I could study you know, culture, but then the actual structure of music and then history, but then, you know, acoustics and the science of that and all of the, the very, and language and, and all the various aspects that go into it. Wine is very much the same in the sense that you can kind of dive deep on climate or geology or geography or culture or, you know, or, or chemistry or whatever, you know, you can kind of, um, parse your studies in, in very different ways. And that keeps me for someone like me that just means that I'm always interested um and so that was why I think for me it was kind of an easy segue because I love the beverage and I knew that but I also found that I there was so much to learn and and it's also in a similar sense um to music it's a very humbling field and that there is always someone who knows more and there's And nobody knows everything. There's always more to
0: learn and deeper to go. Um, Right. That sounds familiar. So I think that's great to (laughs) to be in a field where
1: there is, you know, a a constant striving for more understanding and deeper.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's lovely. I am also curious when you decided to branch out from uh, I, I are you still working as a sum? No, I mean, not really. In restaurants, I guess I should say, <laughs> not in,
1: not in restaurants. We'll do pop ups and things like that. I'll,
0: I'll yeah, kind yeah. Of I mean, I, on occasion, right? But. Obviously, I know you're using that knowledge and experience and everything else. I, I know you're yeah. doing education and all kinds of cool stuff with it. Um But what was that transition like to starting a winery? Then to starting Stella Fourteen? Like, what, what were your thoughts? Was it? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, what, what were your goals and and were did you have to adjust those did what were your expectations and did you have <laughs> to adjust day. those yeah i mean well it and it's like happy accidents
1: you know and i think covid kind of prompted a lot of that i had decided to leave houston um and to to part ways with my restaurant group in january of 2020 and then um and lauren and i my partner and i decided to move back to the northeast which is where we're both from and um and then we moved got to March and we were sort of planning on moving in June, July and borders were closing and everything. And we just moved because we were afraid we were going to get trapped in Texas. And um, and then here we were in Vermont and everything that I had kind of career-wise had um, fallen through that I'd sort of planned because restaurants were closed and nobody was hiring and everything kind of had dissipated and this vineyard became available for lease. So the goal when we moved up was to put vines in the ground and make wine in about five years after I'd had time to kind of work with other people and develop a little more experiential knowledge of the thing. And um, and then there I was without a job or any really foreseeable uh, you know, future in restaurants or anything else I could had been doing for the past decade and um or two i suppose and so we just decided we'd take over the vineyard and make wine and um and so it was a little bit spontaneous in that respect um Mm. but i love i mean i've always loved being outdoors and um and so all of a sudden going we took over a vineyard that hadn't been pruned in june and so we just jumped into you know suddenly i was spending eight hours a day in the vineyard pruning and um and learning about you know viticulture from the most terrifyingly hands-on perspective, um, and and decided because I'm you know a total masochist that we would go ahead and make the wine as opposed to sell the grapes, and um, and fortunately there were good people around to to help and and to sort of guide and be on call through that whole process. But I think, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily jump into it in quite the same way (laughs) or recommend that, but, (laughs) but it's been amazing. And now, you know, we're making the wine in our barn as opposed to in somebody else's facility. And um, I've, I mean, it's again, a a super humbling process and viticulture itself is so challenging. And especially when it's just like basically the two of us out in the vineyard um, farming six acres and trying to do it organically and sustainably and as thoughtfully as possible um we've made lots of mistakes and you know and and it's every time you do you you pay the price for a couple years usually if you've made mistakes whether it's in the way you've pruned or the way you've combed or the way you've mowed or you know there's so many different elements to the vineyard that um it weigh into the quality of your harvest the quality of your wine and um and into what the vines look like the following year so um it's been a wild ride
0: (laughs) (laughs) How, is, uh, how how did your... You have, what, four vintages now under your belt?
1: So we, we've we grown for three harvests now. And okay. our first harvest we made, so we released 2020, which is our first vintage of style okay. 14. And then in 2021, um, we had decided not to drive grapes an hour and a half during harvest anymore. So we weren't producing in the same space and we didn't have anywhere great to produce. So we decided to sell the so we sold it to a number of other producers in Vermont. And, and then 2022, we began producing again. So we have two vintages that we've produced and three that
0: we've... So having been through two productions then, let's say, two, two yeah, because that's kind of what I'm mm-hmm. leading up to, is did that impact the way that you tasted wine? As somebody who, you know, obviously has a, a background in you know, very serious wine tasting as a master psalm, did you did it did it add a new element to that for you
1: oh absolutely yeah no you, definitely <laughs> i mean there's so many there's so many things that are visceral about this business and until you've really been watching your own fermentations and seeing when things i mean things don't always go perfectly especially if you're just working with native yeast and you're not messing around with stuff you can kind of see and how to play with things and work with how oxygen affects everything how you manage that um, that education has been really interesting, but it also means that when I taste wine, I have a much greater appreciation for the things that where I, you know, before I could say, oh, okay, there's, you know, maybe a little bit of VA here and I can it sort of taste like maybe this fermentation went a little hot or something. That now is a much more specific and kind of visceral understanding of what I'm tasting in from understanding and having watched and sort of felt my own fermentations in a different way and i am right. still so green and such a novice in this that i you know right. i'm looking forward to another 10 years of this and being able to look back and say okay
0: yeah wow i you know back then i thought i right. had a better understanding i still didn't
1: have a freaking clue and so um but but definitely <laughs> right, right. i taste wine differently right. and the way yeah plays out and all of those things i mean it's just it's yeah and I, and I can't yeah, say like, that it's one thing specific. It's just kind of the whole experience.
0: Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, for me, I was, I was going to say it sort of simultaneously demystifies it in a way where, you you know, things before that you would taste and you're trying to find a name for it and now you're just like, oh, that's bread, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Like, I've had yeah. that, you know, yeah. I've seen that happen or whatever it is, you know, or that's like oak or that's, you know, you, you now know sort of like how the sausage is made and know, you know, what what's yeah. what's, what's in there and why some of those flavors and aromas and things happen. Um, absolutely. But then, at the si- simultaneously, you when you taste certain wines, it sort of adds a new layer of like when it works out. You're just like, wow, that transcends winemaking somehow. It's like the one plus yeah. one equals three in this case, and then it sort of adds that extra level of like appreciation for when that comes out. You know? Oh, that...
1: absolutely, absolutely. And and D- just talking with people who have real mastery of the craft and have done it for a really long time, my questions are totally different now. And right. their answers as a result are that much more interesting and layered to me because I am right. asking different. I'm, and it's funny, I was just chatting with a colleague about, you know, teaching viticulture and teaching vinification from a, you know, in, as a master sommelier and quartermaster master sommelier classes. And I, and I view it so differently now than when I first started teaching. And one of the things yeah. I feel like it's that I hope to convey to a younger generation and in the work that I do is saying, you know, helping them understand what to look for in a vineyard and what to ask in a winery, because, you know, we all start, a lot of us start in this industry and you're, you are thoughtfully taken by someone on a wine trip to a, a brilliant region. And you're talking to winemakers and you have no idea what you're asking or why you're asking, you know, the most
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: gigantic, like, right. Oh, what percentage of, you know, new Oak is in this one. And nobody cares, right? The winemaker is looking at you like, here's right. a door. And, right. and now I think, <laughs> right. you know, I have a totally different set of questions that i would ask and and the way i teach it is different it's saying you know okay let's let's talk about what you really see when you go to a vineyard what are you looking for because when we took over this vineyard i mean i was walking vines that i was ostensibly taking responsibility for and i had so little idea what i was um right oh my god being able to see a vineyard Oh, oh my god it's yeah. just like what am i doing what am i doing and and this is you know these are hybrid varieties that have been cultivated in kind of classic new england tradition like three four trunks some of them and just wow. like wild growth and oh my god i didn't know what i was looking at yeah
0: yeah Now i'm very jealous of you know somebody who like like lucy morton uh, who is an ampelographer who like i just mm-hmm. imagine her you know her knowledge just by looking at a vine is so encyclopedic that it's like i just you know i'm so jealous of that ability i mean i oh, learn something absolutely. every year every vintage like just to you know and 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 you i, I am mean, sadly learned by making mistakes like you're oh this looks great and then you you realize oh that's like so <laughs> overcropped or so you know whatever it is like yeah. you know there's so many ways that like you learn to see you know whatever and yeah yeah it's a it's an amazing journey um and then always learning. Like you said, there's always more to learn. And there's always, like you know, a Lucy out there who, who is, like, yeah, this amazing mind <laughs> that you can learn from. It's like, uh, she's Absolutely. forgotten more than we'll ever know kind of thing. Um, yeah. What um, Now, with Stella 14, then, how did you approach the winemaking? I mean, you have, like, you come from, you know, when you have, I mean, you had a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of, of world wine at that point in terms of, you know, at least, you know, what the court uh, looks at. Yeah. And... You know, so how do you narrow that down to like I mean, what you're gonna what you're gonna do in your winery?
1: Yeah, well, I mean some some of that is determined by circumstance, and we got
0: three right.
1: three hard days of frost at the beginning of the season, which was uh, the earliest frost that the valley had seen in about thirty years. So that was unexpected, and that changed some of our plans, um, just with respect to fruit ripeness. But um, but with our first vintage, I mean, what we really wanted to do was create wines that. Number one, we wanted to drink. Number two, we're pretty unadulterated um, and really just as as clean and as pure an expression of the fruit as we could make because we don't know, and frankly, nobody really like knows what these wines are supposed to taste like. We're making wine in Vermont. There's no history here of winemaking that right. goes back more than twenty years, thirty years. We're on the oldest vineyard in Vermont, one of two old, of the oldest vineyards, right? Like, and it's
0: and, it's how old. So the vines were planted, the vineyard was planted in 95,
1: um, but it was planted to a lot of the hybrids that were available at that time. So a lot of the French, like Uh, Marchal Foch and Saval Blanc. Yeah. And and then when Frontenac became available in 96, it was planted. So 99 and 2000 were the plantings of a lot of the Frontenac that we work with. And then the Marquette came out in 2006 and we sort of planted uh, and they were planted soon thereafter. So um, got it. Anyway, so there's no, it's not like, oh, we're going to make a classic Vermont Marquette, because that isn't a thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, right? So, um, hey. we drink a lot of Beaujolais, and we drink a lot of uh, Lambrusco, and we have an almost exclusively red variety planted vineyard. So, a, a tremendous amount of what we made was bubbly red um, pet mat, because... Um, nice we were like okay this will be it they're high acid grapes you can't really right. do much about that like frontenac just has screaming acidity and and it's red it's super dark so even making right. rosé we made a rosé which is red um like it, it, a, the tiniest right. amount of like straight to press and it's still pretty red um yeah
0: it's almost like a tinterior almost yeah
1: it, it's almost tenterior yeah i mean not but it feels that way right. when you press right. it because it's just red all of a sudden and um <laughs> right. Right. and so and we love i mean i love lambrusco and i think sparkling red is actually a thing we could do pretty well here as a state um with a lot of the great
0: varieties of great yeah it's um, oh, great we did idea. a sort of semi-carbonic version of uh, marquette
1: and made that into a, a bubbly slightly effervescent uh pet nat style and then and then we have seven rows. Tragically, we only have seven rows of Frontenac Blanc, which we love. And we made four Demijohns. Mm-hmm. Um, and we love it. It's our most popular wine. It sold out immediately. And I wish we had more. Um, which oh, I find lovely. a really almost yin like character. But we, re- we really did nothing. I mean, we, we allowed the juice to begin fermenting naturally. We foot trod everything. And then, basically, I just was watching Bricks levels like mad and watching the ferments like crazy. Just making sure that... I mean, our first my first day down in the winery after we began anything with skin contact I had a flex tank egg that was just bubbling over the top (laughs) I walked in and I was like oh no my god what is happening you know the skins are pushing out the top the you know there's red flowing on the ground I was in total panic mode and punched it down with my hand (laughs) and um and then you know and but everything thankfully like fermented pretty clean and um and we made, you know, we did, we used flex tank. We use some stainless steel, which I don't think I will future. I think it was a little bit.
0: Mm, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that's, I honestly just remembered probably one of the best uh, Vermont wines I've had is a sparkling red. And sadly, I haven't had your wine yet, but uh, yeah, my favorite Vermont wine to date was a sparkling red. Um, delicious. Like just a beautiful, beautiful wine. Uh, So I think you might be onto something with that as a state style kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So, so the thing that I'm thinking about is I, it's, it's, you just got back from uh, a trip to Dallas that uh, was in the intervening time since we last talked. And in that time as, as a master Psalm, you went and conducted, you know, a weekend or three day education, for people who are sitting their advanced psalm, uh, or or about to, who are preparing to sit their advanced psalm um, certification tests, and I, so I'm really fascinated by that experience. Um, I sat in the intro, you know, I did I did the intro test, you know, and then decided I wasn't interested in being a psalm, but you know, passed that intro level. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it was a fascinating thing where it was sort of like you better come like yes there was instruction but you better come with some knowledge so it's a lot of self self-learning on the outside and then you come and sort of test yourself is that and is that an accurate way of describing that
1: yeah absolutely i mean i think the intro for sure is that way and then you know there there is a little exam at the end to kind of consolidate and, and i guess uh, summarize a lot of the information that's been conveyed over the two days the exam occurs um The advanced course is thankfully without an exam. Back when I sat my advanced exam, it used to be actually three days of education work and, um, and teaching and doing blind tastings. And then you went straight. Then on the third day you went to lunch and when you came back, you started your examination for the next three days. And so there was no ability to breathe that entire week. It was like, okay, (laughs) absorb anything that you haven't got already and then sit an exam. And, um, and now we have it split. So that basically <laughs> you sit for three days with just coursework and just, I mean, just, you know, we had a, a wonderful seminar on sake. They had a seminar on Piedmont. They had a seminar on, uh, you know, business of the sommelier and, and pricing and everything else that falls into that category and a bunch of blind tastings. And then everybody kind of has a glass of champagne and goes home to work and study before they sit the exam. And the purpose really of the course now is to sort of show what the level should be for a study leading into the advanced sommelier exam, um, but also a chance to ask questions, meet master sommeliers, understand that we're not aliens and that we're accessible and we're there to ask us questions and um, and to make those connections so that in the year ahead as they're to study, they might, that they can reach out to and say, hey, David, I'm working on this. What do you think way off? Or, you know, because a lot of people don't live in urban setting necessarily where they have, you know, most sommeliers available.
0: Yeah. Now, I guess what I was getting to, I so I like I I've judged some competitions um some wine, you know, sort of wine competitions. Have you done that ever? Judged a Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Judged a competition. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah the, um us see the rodeo competition. I I'm <laughs> <laughs> Um I I'm I'm always impressed at how strange. I mean, I, I, the last time I did this, I was just sort of like really i mean i don't know like not impressed i was sort of concerned with the way that the judging parameters defined wine you know what i mean i don't know if that Mm -hmm. comes if that makes sense to you but where it's like you know really like the literally the first five things on this uh sheet like so every wine had a little score sheet and the first the first five things were you know flaws is it flawed basically and like some of the flaws are now with like the rise of natural wine i would say not considered flaws even uh i mean cloudiness for example And i'm not sure why that would you know if if you're not filtering like does it, so in other words it means your wine has to be an industrial product to be at the highest grade to be you know flawless like if you can get dinged <laughs> yeah if, if you can get dinged because you didn't filter then you know, you're essentially forcing filtration. <laughs> I mean, like, right. or you know, you're encouraging it. You're incentivizing it. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know yeah. if you have that experience. I, you, I get what at least what I'm saying. I mean, there's a lot I could say more about that. But sure. um, in terms of the court, you know, you have a curriculum and you have, you know, what you have to to talk to people about, and you are now, you know making wine and doing other things have you found any rub in what you wish the court was saying uh or, or you know is is that do you have that experience of that sort of out-of-body experience as you're teaching being like this is giving parameters that i don't necessarily agree with or that i think are too narrow or don't are not inclusive enough totally so throwing you know asking y- you to yeah i'll say ahead.
1: this <laughs> um No, 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 not at all. I I think um, competitions are really difficult and I've judged a number of them with very different sets of parameters based upon the philosophy of the competition, right? And so everything from like the Houston Rodeo wine competition to the Texom Wine Awards to the Portuguese uh, competition, internal competition for their own wines to fill in the blank, right? Um, And Everybody's criterion are slightly different. The one unifying feature, which is unfortunate, I think in a lot of them is that it's kind of what is the least offensive frequently. The wine that is most successful is the least offensive, right? Because uh, it really (laughs) lends itself to, um, well, it it depends tremendously on the judges and their experience levels. And a lot of competitions are pulling from a broad spectrum of, um, you know, education and and uh wine knowledge and things like that i think things like the texan wine awards were always good because i I found it was like a combination of master sommeliers masters of wine and experts in the field so that you know you didn't have somebody who really didn't know you know italian wine judging an italian wine category um things like that but i think you still end up with unfortunately frequently in competition kind of the wine that offended the least number of people as the successful one right so it's never going to it's never going to be terrible but it's never going to be great either um i think with the court especially where we are right now um i think perspective has been shifting heavily as far as what we teach and um and how we teach it and it's pretty open-minded because i think i mean The quartermaster somebody started as a very formal organization with an eye toward service at the highest level. And I think we still teach to that standard. But I think we are also the teaching has changed pretty substantially to be more inclusive of other venues. And we even administer exams with that in mind so you know a service exam might involve you should be trained to perform in sort of three Michelin star service but you might also be thrown into a casual French bistro setting and are you able to shift the way you communicate with your guests to reflect a more casual less um, sort of austere setting and and how well do you kind of adjust to that and that i i subscribe to fully i think with respect to tasting um you know i i think there's always room to teach more about the cutting edge of what's happening happening in our industry but um but i also firmly believe that right now as far as wine education is concerned we have a much bigger gap with young sommeliers um as far as their understanding of classic wines from classic regions than we do. I mean, like you start bringing up wines from the Canary Islands or from, you know, Natty wines from Eastern Europe, and suddenly you've got, you know, a lot of knowledge and a lot of excitement. But you bring up, you know, Piedmont or Tuscany or Burgundy, and suddenly there's this vacuum. And that, I think, is actually a problem if we're talking about people who want to understand the entire world of wine as opposed to just one niche category um and
0: can we can and i don't i mean um, i don't know you don't have I, to
1: I, not everybody needs to know the entire world of wine i don't think but i at the end end of the day i think you know it helped that picasso understood you know how to draw a figure before he decided to play with the art form you know and i think learning the basics is really crucial So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was joking with somebody recently that like all natural wine makers to like prove their metal should show that they can make like a, a <laughs> clean, beautiful, like like a, like a clean, you know, like Napa cab, basically like they, you know, every, everybody should at yeah. least, you know, sort of like you, show that you can do realism before you move into abstract, you know, kind yeah, of thing. Just, that same idea of like Picasso, you know, yeah. Like, I don't know if well, you've watched the French dispatch or whatever, the, uh, the, Wes Anderson film but that was that was a joke that they or sort of a joke that they made in that where it was like you know how you how you determine if an artist is a real artist is like ask them to do some simple thing if they do that really well then you know that like they're, they're, yeah. <laughs> their abstraction is actually a choice versus like they lack skill absolutely, um,
1: <laughs> absolutely. I mean anybody can freaking throw a bunch I, of grapes I, in a bin and ferment them that's that is not difficult um, and I'm not saying right. that we should be Everybody needs to know how to manipulate and use all the tools because we have more tools and more toys and more, you know, gels and filters and things that you can do in a winery. I don't think that everybody needs to learn how to totally strip the soul out of a wine. But I do think that when, (laughs) you know, like. I I had this great a great conversation and I think I may have mentioned this already but um you know I've had I had a wine that was kind of going sideways a little bit on me and started calling people left and right because I'm like listen I don't know how to fix I don't know how to fix this and I'm not trying to like change it into some perfect example of this wine I just want to make sure that I release a wine that isn't filled with you know acetaldehyde and <laughs> and I think that's right you know right. that's I don't want to release a wine that's, you know, mousy or, you know, bready to a point that it doesn't make sense, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 No. And And some of those.
1: And I think that's the challenge.
0: Are you still listening? Thank you so much. I think you deserve a reward. Well, let's see if it's a reward. To look at the world ecologically is to acknowledge that natural systems are incredibly complex and interdependent. The tiniest life forms, like soil bacteria, are vitally important to the health and survival of the entire world. Our understanding of the world is immense. But the achievement of this great knowledge at times blinds us to the fact that what we don't know is even greater. Did you know that mosquitoes are pollinators? Yep, a majority of their diet is actually nectar, and a minority is blood. And only the females need blood. Some stunningly beautiful wildflowers, like the blunt leaf orchid, rely on mosquito pollination. I learned this because of my extreme dislike of mosquitoes. Whenever I find myself outraged by something or someone, I try to confront my feelings directly and learn as much as I can about them to see if I can understand them in a different way. Mosquitoes have become allegoric for this need in my life to empathize and answer the hatred I find in myself with understanding, I've come to see these uncomfortable things as my greatest opportunities for growth. So I thought the mosquito needed its own myth. So here we go. The Legend of the Mosquito. In the beginning, all the world lived in light. But one day, a great and terrifying darkness soared over the great island of earth and extinguished the light from all the land. All the creatures fled in fear to the great mountain at the edge of the world. They cried and spoke to each other about what they should do. "'One of us must ascend to the darkness and see if we can remove it or break through it,' said the eagle, the most fearless of all the creatures. The eagle flew into the sky and returned. "'The darkness is hard as rock. Neither my talons nor my beak could open it. It is heavy as the world and cannot be moved,' the tiger said." My claws are not as sharp as your talons, but my might is stronger. I will try. So the tiger climbed to the peak of the mountain at the edge of the world where the darkness touched it, but he returned in darkness also. The darkness can withstand the fiercest attack of both my fangs and my claws. The other creatures trembled when they heard this. The human, who was not as brave as the eagle or tiger, said, I will use my tools, my sharp spear, my axe, my gun. Surely the darkness cannot resist steel and bullets. But the human, too, returned in darkness, their ammunition spent, their tools broken, and their eyes empty. One by one, every creature with claws or talons or fangs or horns tried to penetrate the darkness, but all failed. In the silence of their despair, they heard a whispering voice say, I will try. Who speaks, the eagle asked. It is me, the mosquito, the mosquito said. The other creatures moaned. You're only good for irritating us, the tiger said. You're as fragile as a dandelion seed and as annoying as a splinter. How can you succeed? We're all much stronger than you have failed, the human mocked. You spread disease and make our lives worse. We have never needed you, and we do not need you now. Still, I will try, said the mosquito. My nose is so sharp that you don't feel when I stick it in your flesh. Maybe this darkness can only be pierced by subtle means. And so the mosquito flew up into the darkness, despite the dismay of all the other creatures. And the darkness was unaware when the mosquito found the skin of the darkness and began to slyly work their nose along the finely knit surface until they smelled something different, a wisp of warmth, like a single star in the night sky. Here they carefully tried to pierce the darkness, and they found that their nose was just subtle enough to slip between the atoms and go through the abyssal night. When mosquito withdrew their nose, The other creatures looked up and saw a thread of light streaming through the hole mosquito had made in a frenzy the other creatures clamored to the light porcupine thrust one of their spines through then hummingbird speared its beak through and the hole widened then jaguar sliced one of their claws through then finally the hole was clawed and torn open by all the creatures who in their fear and panic of the dark trampled mosquito to death as light returned They all danced in celebration, the broken body of Mosquito forgotten under their feet. The end.